Well, hey, and welcome to another episode of the Becoming Better podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Krismer, and we're so glad you're here. Well, hey, and thanks for joining us again as we're in week three of a series where we're taking a deep dive into the role and personhood of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. This week's message spurred a ton of questions. So as Jason, Josh, and I sat down, we discussed primarily the role of baptism in our indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And because of how many questions we had on this specific topic and a couple other topics revolving uh, this one, this is a longer episode. It's about 90 minutes in total. Uh, But I do hope that you stay all the way through the end, even if you have to do it in a couple of sittings, because the last question we answered is a really, really fun one. So I do hope that you stick around for that at the very end of this conversation. And as I hope you see in this conversation, your questions really do make these conversations so much more productive for us. So we're grateful if you've ever sent in a question, but if not, and you do have a question, I hope you join us at quadcity.church slash podcast, where you can submit your question to be answered right here on the show. Well, as I said, I hope you buckle up for a longer episode of the Becoming Better podcast. Let's go ahead and jump in now. Hey guys, good morning. Happy Monday, everybody. Hey, everybody. We're back. I uh, I listened to the podcast from last week this morning. I thought you guys did a great job. Good job on that. It was fun having Corey. Yeah, he did good. He did. Yeah, I thought so too. Except he did insult us. He when? did to he five did. people listen. He said something like, you know, well, when you, you know, get this podcast and nobody else is in the office and then you have to invite the intern to come uh, hang out. And I feel like that was your, an insult to him, not to you. With, with your... <laughs> 18 listeners on the podcast. Oh. So, so that was the shot. He did throw a little shade oh. at us. He did. I'm like, I was excited to have him. He doesn't even know the statistics. He do, he, well, obviously, he's not listening. No, so. apparently not. I really was excited to have him. It was great. Him. It was yeah. good. Young dude. It was yeah. good, yeah. There was a moment where I forgot he was on there because he didn't talk for like 25 minutes. Like in the middle of the podcast, he didn't say a single word for like a, a good 20 minute stretch. And then he said something. I was like, oh yeah, Corey's there. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah trying to well, we did miss you. And it's funny. We didn't even mention that you weren't even here. So I did. You didn't, think, but I'm not insulted at all by that. I think I people, didn't even notice it. I'm guessing people figured it out when the intro was not Brendan's voice. <laughs> it was not. They were probably sure. like, wait a minute. A little different. Yeah. yeah. That's not the normal guy who does the intro. It was no. fall break last week for those who don't know. So a lot of. Our staff with young kids were out, including Brendan. Yeah. I was too. I just was still in town. Because you had to come back. Because you were preaching. You have to be on the podcast. You do. That's just part of the thing. That is. That's how it goes. That is true. Yeah, no, we were out of town. We um we took the week and went to Yosemite and uh, did did five days there. So we were, uh, yeah, we had a good time. Beautiful place. I'd never been before. Incredible park. Um, and it was funny listening to your story of the trailer made me think of some of the, cause we hauled a 18 foot trailer from Vegas to Yosemite. It's like a nine hour, yeah, seven, eight hour drive from, from Vegas to the park. And, uh, it was my first time hauling that big of a trailer, mm-hmm. which is not a massive trailer, but I'm driving a 
2007 forerunner so it's not as if i've got like a, this big old truck that i'm right this tr- it's like like at the limit for you could this, feel it. it you could feel it yeah you hit you know 70 miles an hour and it starts to wobble <laughs> a little bit and the whole vehicle starts to go left and right it's like okay too fast that's yeah that's enough but we um at one point coming back we pulled into uh listening to your story about the uh, trailer wheel we pulled into a starbucks in bishop and we had a guy like wave us down, flag us down in the parking lot. And I rolled the window down and he was like, hey, you're dragging a bike. <laughs> and I said, uh-oh. Because <laughs> we had, so this, you know, we had this 18-foot tow-behind camper. And then on the back of that, I had mounted my bike rack so that we could bring our two bikes and Porter's bike because Yosemite is super bike-friendly. So we rode all over the place while we were there. And apparently, like, I just bought this new bike rack, uh, used but new to me and it's you know super secure really good really nice bike rack um which is all fine and good it connects to each of the wheels and has a little thing that comes down over the wheels so as long as your wheels are on your bike your bike's super super secure the problem is courtney's front wheel somehow came off of her bike while we were driving and because we had the camper on i couldn't see the bikes at all i was just (laughs) trusting that they were good so at some point, probably coming into Bishop, we hit a bump, the frame of her bike popped off the wheel, the forks in the frame, everything was dragging behind the trailer for probably only about a, a half mile. So there wasn't crazy damage to the bike, but uh, it was definitely just dangling there. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, there's a, there's a trailer mishap for you. It's not a great day. No, it's not. And here's what I know happened. When you put that bike on there and you strapped and locked it down, you slapped that tire and said, that ain't going anywhere. It wasn't. <laughs> Didn't think it was. No. Uh, you have to. It's you have every, to. Every it dude is. does that. Yeah, give it a little hit. It felt good. Yeah. Tug the ratchet strap a little. That's you go, right. Oh, that's tight. That's, that's good. not going it's anywhere. It's feeling that's good. Yeah. 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 Well, Porter's was ratchet strapped to the top of the Forerunner because it's only a two-bike rack. And that thing really wasn't going anywhere. So his was fine. <laughs> Well, glad to have you back. Yep. Yeah, it's good to be back. Uh, looking forward. So I jumped in this, this <coughs> Sunday. I um, Because I was out of the office this week, you know, we had talked about the message and sermon planning, but I had not read the message. Uh, so I sat uh, in PV. I was in PV this past weekend mostly and uh, sat in the 930 and heard it for the first time and thought you did a great job. You know, obviously we talked about how um, divisive some of this stuff can be, some of the ideas around when is it, that someone gets the Holy Spirit. Because what we know as humans is we really want a black and white, clear answer to that question. Mm -hmm. But what we also know as Bible believers is we just don't have that. In scripture, we do not have a clear cut answer for every single time the Holy Spirit comes this one way. Um, So I just love the way that you navigated that. I really enjoyed a line that you had that was, you know, here is the normative biblical way. All throughout scripture, here's what we see with a few exceptions for, I think, specific purposes. Here's the normative way. And again, to your point, I think that we would be wise to follow that normative way in any any way we can. Um, But we'll get to a bunch of questions about that in a little bit. Um, Also, uh, so as we though, I think maybe helpful for context, as we jump into this idea, we've got maybe three or four specific questions on baptism. And I was just thinking as I was listening to the message, um, it might be helpful for us just to share our own experiences with with baptism. So, Josh, tell me your kind of baptism story. Yeah, so I was probably ten or a, I was probably ten or eleven. Um, I was started going to church. Dad was sick, had cancer. Grandma came to visit. A lot of you know that piece of it. So we started going to church. She left. I kept going to the church. It was down in Chandler. 
Uh, to this day, I couldn't tell you the name of the church. Um, Judah, my oldest, actually asked me yesterday about when I, how old was I when I got baptized? Because um, he got to witness a baptism. So anytime they see it at church, they always are asking questions. Um, and they've been asking questions for a really long time. And we have talks. And I, he said, who did it? And I go, man, I don't know. An old pastor. All I remember is he's like, you have to help me back up when you come. Because I was already <laughs> still a big kid. I go, so it was the same way. It was a sit down with the foot thing. He's like, now you just got to grab hold that bar and pull yourself back up there, son. I said, I remember he came to my house and uh, shared with my parents. I had made the decision on my own. So it wasn't like parental pressure. It wasn't anything like that. I just knew, man, I had found something. And I was in a season of grief and suffering. I'm trying to put together um, loss and why that was going on. And man, church was uh, just a huge hole that, uh, or a huge feeling of a huge hole that just seemed to make sense to me. And so, yeah, man, did it. I said probably I was 11 um, and then, you know, followed after Jesus. I was in a, a Southern Baptist church actually too. So I don't know if, it still counts, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> no, I was playing. No, I loved it. It was a great church. Really progressive now that I know. Like, progressive that isn't like they sang not out of hymnals. Yeah. So, like, um, they sang off a transparency sheet that, like, just went up on a screen. On the old overhead. On the old overhead, yeah. Nice. And so, you know, it's interesting, too. Like, my late teenage years, I walked away um, from faith. Um, and I really wasn't following Jesus. And came back and, um, you know, because I know a lot of you have that piece of your story, but like my decision at 11 was so honoring and righteous and true, I think. And I just wanted to follow Jesus. I didn't feel the need I needed to do it again. I just repented, right? And I know, because there are a lot of listeners, I know you feel that. We all walk away. um, But I think the decision at 11 was the right one. It was the one that, and again, like for me, there was no outside pressures of it it was like no this is what you do make this decision get baptized and so um yeah that was mine yeah that's really cool that is a good um distinction of that idea of hey i was baptized but then i walked away and now i'm back what do i do because a lot of people do feel that pressure of oh does that mean i've got to get rebaptized? was it not real the first time and i think something that jason says all the time is helpful in that which is this right like for most of us the day we get baptized should be the most spiritually, uh, it, we should be spiritual infants yeah. the day that we're baptized, right? It should be the beginning yep. of our faith journey. That's what we see all throughout the New Testament is it is the very beginning of our journey of faith. So this expectation that we would be baptized and then we would live a great life honoring to God the entire time, uh, just as setting us up for failure. I mean, right. uh, honestly, like it is the beginning of the journey. We know there's gonna be ups and downs along that journey. Uh, sometimes for years, right? And that's, I always try to share that when people ask me, hey, you know, I walked away, should I be rebaptized? It's like, did you do it intentionally the first time? Why were you baptized the first time? Was that by your own will? Was that because you wanted to surrender to Jesus, you know, of your own will? And if the answer is yes, then okay. So you had a, a valley season. And now you're coming out of it and that's okay. And you still love Jesus yeah. and he's still with you. Yeah. Uh, and we need, can keep moving forward yeah. uh, without having to have that pressure of, oh, I can be rebaptized. Cause then what's going to happen the next time? Yeah. You're going to keep doing it. Yeah. The next time you sin, the next time you have you right. know, a darker season. Yeah. So we've lessened it. Yeah, absolutely. For Mine's sure. maybe a little different. There's some similarities to your, your story. Um, 
I was uh, baptized of my own free will at probably 11 years old. Uh, I was in, Val- in the Valley. I went to a church in the West Valley in Surprise. It's now a, a CCV campus and had a student pastor baptize me alongside some of my family in uh, when I was in maybe sixth grade, which would be, yeah, maybe 11 or 10 or 11, 12, somewhere around there. Fifth, sixth grade, something, something like that. And... Um, uh, yeah, good experience. It was in the, you know, down in Phoenix, everyone has a swimming pool. So it was a, someone's mm. swimming pool. I don't remember if it was our yard or someone else's yard, but, um, it was a good experience. It was, you know, a decision I'd made. Uh, and it was cool to be baptized, baptized alongside some of my family and, and all of that. But, uh, the other part of the story is that I was, uh, born into a Catholic family, long time, multi-generational Catholic family. So I was, I was baptized as an infant as well. So we get that question a lot of, hey, I was raised Catholic or I was baptized as an infant because of my family heritage. What do I do now? And sometimes it can be a little bit, there can be a lot of tension, right? right? Wanting to honor what your parents did, what your family did for you when you were born and, you know, the way they were committing to raise you. And does me being baptized by my own choice, like negate that uh, passion of theirs, that intention of theirs, um, so I always just like to point that out to people that have that similar story of like, man, I've been there. And if anything, you know, what I always try to say is, if anything, it is like the fruition of their hopes and dreams for you. Yeah. Right. You making this choice personally isn't saying anything about the choice they made on your behalf. It's only saying that, hey, I'm in. Like I've I've made this right. choice. I want to follow Jesus and I'm surrendering, surrendering to him personally. Um and I think it does honor the the choices your family makes. Like, yeah, I mean, so. at, like you said, at the very, the decision was, I mean, there's a lot of wrapped up into it too. But I think at the core and the heart of the decision is they wanted you to follow after Jesus. Um, and you're like, I, well, I still, I'm still here. I'm still doing that. That's what I always tell yeah. someone, especially if they're older um, and their parents are no longer here, right? No longer with them. And they've come now to a new church that teaches a new thing. And I'm like, hey, you're, I think your parents did the best that they knew to do with the information they had. Now you've been presented with new information and what your parents wanted. You're still 60 years old seeking the Lord. I think they would be tickled pink by that. You know what I mean? They would love that. And so I I do the same thing, but we get a lot of those. We do. I got three, I think three of them yesterday. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Three of them yesterday. And that's why I think it's helpful to share some of our own personal experiences because there is so much wrapped up in this idea of baptism. So, so much history and here's what I, here's how I navigated it and that sort of thing. So, um, just to hear even like my own story isn't necessarily representative of the biblical principle, the biblical command for baptism. Like it, it isn't necessarily, uh, that clear cut picture of, I came to faith and was baptized immediately. Now it eventually was when I actually came to faith, but I have this whole other kind of more heritage tradition wrapped up in, in my story. Um, so all that to say, I think it's just helpful for people that exist in that space outside of, okay, this is what I now see in scripture as the way, yep. like this is the way to come to faith, to, to believe and to repent and to be baptized. And these things that we're talking about within the context of this, uh, this message on the Holy spirit. And I think sometimes for people that exist outside of that, it's really hard to navigate. So I think it's just helpful to hear. Yeah, for sure. And mine was, I mean, you know, the guy, like I went forward and the pastor came to my house and now looking back as being a pastor, I go, oh, he. He wanted to talk to my parents, like just as much wanted them to like, 
he wanted to follow up with them and see like, hey, why are you not coming to church? But your son comes every week with the neighbors down the street. Mm -hmm. And my parents, you know, like came to church that day. You know, so I look back now and go, yeah, it wasn't like I walked down immediately, got in the water. Like I didn't do that, but the, uh, there was no large gap, but it was like, oh, he's only 11. Why does this kid want to, you yeah. know, why does he want to do that? I'm going to go talk to his parents. That's and cool. I don't think it was for, I don't, I think he still would have let me, but it was like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to evangelize to them, which any pastor would want, right? That opportunity. Yeah. So what, what about you, Jason? What's your baptism story? So I was a weird kid. I know that's surprising. Yeah. <laughs> Shocking. Um, but. You know, I always had this sense of God's calling on my life from a really young age. Um, you know, this was the early 80s, okay? So there was a a radio station between my little town in Harrodsburg and Lexington. There was a town called Versailles, and there was a Christian radio station on the left-hand side of the highway called WJMM. And this was a Christian radio station back before Christian radio stations had music. This is when they just did, you know, sermons all the time. And I would be the weird kid with the transistor radio listening to sermons at night. Uh, and so I ended up getting baptized at about uh, somewhere, I think I was about eight years old. And um, I was going to this little church. The pastor's name was Mike Bro, And I went forward and... And Mike baptized me. There was another guy named Stuart that got baptized with me, and he was a big kid. So Stuart was probably, I don't know, 5'2 at the time, and I was like 3'4 at the time. <laughs> and I remember Mike making a joke of something like, because Stuart went up first, and, oh, this is more my size because Mike's not a big man. But anyway— that's awesome. Here's here's the thing that I think when I think about my own baptism story, and when you guys brought this idea up just a second ago, I was like, oh, I don't want to do this. And here's part of why. Because for me, when I look back at my baptism story, um, it's easy for me to see now that that my baptism experience came more from a place of fear than faith. Mm. So there was this this angst in me of of I'm if I get hit in a car wreck today I'm going to hell kind of idea and mm -hmm. so there was this part of me as a as an eight year old that was like I need to do this to get my get out of jail get out of hell free card right so I there was that that it was based there was a lot of fear out of uh, it wrapped up in my baptism story. So I'm, I don't like that part of the story. Um, That's so wild. But I know you now, so that does make sense. It does make sense. At an eight-year-old, you're already thinking about I'm it. Already, yeah, for sure. Was well, it's about because it. you were listening to all those radio preachers <laughs> talk about hellfire and brimstone. They're all Southern, well, they're all Southern preachers, too. Oh, oh for sure. Yeah. Every one of them yeah, were talking sure. about that. <laughs> For sure. So that's part well, of your the, family like, didn't really go to church either. No, there was so, they, yeah, it was so it wasn't yeah. like you were being like, you better do this, boy. No, yeah, no, not at all, not at all. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was probably, I've got an older brother and an older sister. Neither one of them cared, so it was <laughs> just me. <laughs> so I was the only one doing this. So uh, the other part I remember about my baptism. So I did when was it up? Came, was it in the up top building? Yes. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I baptized my little brother in that baptism. Yeah. Uh, 
is, you know, they had the robes back then. You know, I'm wearing my little khaki pants because that's what you do when you go to church. You have your khaki pants. And for whatever reason, I didn't take my underwear off when I got baptized and I didn't bring any. And so I remember we stopped at McDonald's on the way home, which was pretty special for us. We didn't do that. We didn't go out to eat very much. And so we stopped at McDonald's for whatever reason. And I remember sitting at the McDonald's there on 127 in Harrodsburg, Kentucky, with my khaki pants showing my wet underwear through the pants as we're sitting in the McDonald's. Dude, Harrisburg. this makes so much more sense now. As to this why is so, why he always tells people we have underwear. He is so insistent. I would literally have the exact that same thought is, as soon as that he That makes talking. so much If you've heard Jason on Easter and Christmas, he always says, we've got shorts, shirt, and underroots. And now, it makes so much sense. You don't want people to experience. I don't want the people to have to do that. Oh, it was, it was and we do. We, we do have... We, and they're one wearers, y'all. Like we, they're brand new. I promise. If you, they're the first time. Yeah, my wife has a pretty those. funny story. So if you know my wife, you should ask her her baptism story about <laughs> underwear and underwear. So my old, the first church I was at is where I met my wife. But we had like these, like white robes, and then like the underwear sitting there, and they're the white, and they're like, I was always like, what are this is so weird. Anytime I baptize like a student, they're like. Can I just bring my own? I was like, yeah, bring two <laughs> pair. You're good. You know, like they were like these, I, I, I don't want to wear these. I was like, yeah, I, I don't blame you. It's yeah. fine. It's okay. No. Like <laughs> that's really, funny. it is, yeah. it is a strange thing, but it now everything connects. It's, it's all, it's all coming back. That it's helps. All- that does help a little. <laughs> but, uh, to your point, I think it was legitimate. Like there was yeah. a desire in, eight-year-old Jason to to get right with the Lord. Yeah. And I didn't have one of those seasons that mm-hmm. you're talking about where I walked away and chose not to follow or had this long stretch of, of not living in a way that honors God. Yeah. Did I sin? For sure. There was right, all. Right. There's always sin. Right. But that sin always came with conviction. It always came with repentance. Always came with the desire to get back right with the Lord, to to walk in purity. So, um, so it was it was legitimate even right. from a young age. So it, I look back on it again. I, I wish the story was different than it was. Right. But it is the story. And God uses all of our broken stories and 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 gets us where we are and tries to get us to where we need to be. So yeah, no, that's that's really good. And again, I think that just helps set a, a helpful uh, context. There is diversity to a lot of our stories, and because so. there's definitely, like you said, as many Catholics that are a part of our church or ex-Catholics, we should say, there's a ton of people who grew up in the era of revivals. Yeah, who were literally walking down that aisle because they were like, "Oh, I don't want to go to hell." Yeah. Right. And again, they still are following after the Lord, yeah. but they probably think the same thing. Like, yeah. oh, I didn't do this probably out of awe and wonder. Right. I did it out of like, please don't send me to hell. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah, many yeah. of our people, right. That's I'm sure how they grew up going to church. Yeah. Well, we have uh, just a boatload of questions today, as I think we all anticipated having after this past Sunday's uh, message. So let's start diving in. And I've tried to organize these in a way to where we've got kind of themes to some of these questions, but uh, that we'll see how that goes. We're just going to tackle them. 
Uh, let's start with this one. Um, this is a really good question. Mariella asks this in First Corinthians uh, chapter two, verse fourteen. It tells us that the natural man, which um, Mariella is using the ESV version, I just pulled in the NIV for my own context is the version I use, uh, which doesn't use that language. The natural man. It actually uses uh, the language the person without the spirit. Um, so as uh, the the person without the spirit receives not the things of the spirit of God, uh, for they are foolish to him. Neither can he know them because they are uh, spiritually, because the, yeah, they are spiritually discerned, meaning the, the things of the spirit are spiritually discerned. So her question is this, can the natural man or the person without the spirit have gifts of the spirit, yet not being a spiritual person as the New Testament describes the term spiritual in Galatians 6, 1. Uh, can the natural man be subject to the influence of the Holy Spirit? So the overarching question here, I think, is what is the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of an unbeliever? So great question, Mary. Uh, thank you. In fact, we're going to actually hit this topic a little bit this week. And so uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of a preview of coming attractions. So uh, to to answer your first question, can they have the gifts of the Spirit? That's, I think, unequivocally no. So the gifts of the Spirit can only come through the indwelling of the Spirit. So I think that's a pretty simple one. The gifts of the Spirit come when you receive the gift of the Spirit. So um, because they do not yet have the Spirit, they do not yet have the gifts of the Spirit. So I think that's pretty simple. Now, the second question being, hey, what is the role? All right. So as you wrote in your question, Mariella, can the natural man be subject to the influences of the Holy Spirit? And to that, the answer is absolutely yes. In fact, uh, we would say that there is no there is no way that any of us would come to faith without the work of the Holy Spirit. Unless the Holy Spirit draws us, none of us would come to the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, come to the Lord in and of ourselves. We just, we have to have the wooing of the Spirit come to us, working on us to bring us to this to the Lord. Um, the text that, that I'd point us to is John chapter 16. And again, this is one that we're actually going to hit on this week. Um, and I think this text tells us what the role of the Spirit is in the life of the unbeliever. So, John chapter 16, verse 8, this is what Jesus says to his disciples when he's trying to introduce the new advocate who is going to come. Here's what he says. When he comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. To which we say, what does it mean, sin, righteousness, and judgment? Which is why we love that he put in there 9 through 11, because he spells it out exactly for us. About sin, he's going to prove the world, meaning these are the unbelievers. Prove the world wrong about sin, because people do not believe in me, Jesus says. So, part of the Holy Spirit's job is to prove the world wrong about Jesus because they don't believe in him. So he's trying to get them to come to faith in him about righteousness, because I'm going to the father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So 
what the Holy Spirit, the older version of this used to say, he's going to come to convict the world of sin. That's the idea here. He's going to prove them wrong because they don't believe in him. That's the role of the Holy Spirit is to get people who don't believe in the Lord Jesus to believe in the Lord Jesus. That is the work of the Holy Spirit's life in the unbeliever. So, uh, hopefully that answers your question. The natural man, yes, can be influenced by the Holy Spirit, and this is how he is influenced, trying to help the unbeliever to come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. I mean, even in the Corinthians passage, right? The If you just work back up, no eye has seen, in verse 9, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. Like Paul is literally, the first couple of chapters of Corinthians, he's 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 had this uh, verses that uh, the foolishness of man and the wisdom of God, and he's trying to show that like, Man actually can't understand God's uh, wisdom, right? But he says, "We, yeah, they didn't get it. And they actually yeah. killed Jesus because of it. But now God's spirit has revealed it. None of us would have known is what he right. says. Not even him right. literally writing this book. He's like, dude, I didn't even know. It was a hidden mystery that God revealed because the spirit of God has come. And so uh, Paul answers really that question. And then he keeps going. He says, who would know the mind of the Lord? And then the very end of chapter two is, but we now have the mind of Christ. Like, because we've been given the Spirit of God, we now understand. We, yep. we understand this wisdom. It's no longer foolishness to us, right? Which, again, in that context, with the philosophy of the Stoics and the Greeks, right, wisdom was seen as this huge thing, right, of understanding. And to look at what Jesus did was foolishness, yeah. right? And that's that whole uh, comparison that Paul is doing here in Corinthians. Yeah, that's really good. Let's move on to this next question. Uh, this next question is prefaced uh, with this idea that you shared out of Acts 19, where we meet a group of uh, John's disciples and ultimately come to find out that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, and these people had not yet received the Holy Spirit. So here's the question. Uh, this writer says, I'm confused. We are, asked, uh, we are to ask forgiveness for our sins before being baptized. So isn't all baptism a baptism of repentance. And the Holy Spirit doesn't show up with this baptism. So why does it sound like their baptism was less than, and there is more needed to be a born again Christian? So for us, until we receive the Holy Spirit, are we not born again? There's a lot to this question. So we, we have to we have to back up and just put the whole thing back into context. So again, we've got to remember the context is John's baptism, Jesus called it, a baptism of repentance. Uh, that's what Paul actually refers to it as there in Acts 19. It's a baptism of repentance. So these disciples that Paul meets had received this baptism of John, but didn't receive the Holy Spirit. And so it's like, well, what, what happened? Here's what happens. Okay, so John's baptism was a precursor to Jesus. Um. It was a baptism of repentance to get the heart of the people right in preparation for the coming of the Lord. In fact, so I want to share with you a verse in in Luke chapter 7. This is a, a kind of a parenthetical note that, the, that uh, Luke writes in when talking about the baptism of John. And so in Luke chapter 7, 
Starting in verse 29, it says, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. So don't miss that. When Jesus comes, the tax collectors believed in Jesus because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. So because they rejected this baptism of repentance, when Jesus came, their minds and their eyes were blinded to who Jesus was. The baptism of John set the people's heart in a right place to say, I want to be ready. I want to be ready when Jesus comes. Um, And so that's what John's baptism did. Now, the question that they they have here is say, okay, he writes, I'm confused. We're to ask for forgiveness for being baptized. So isn't all baptism a baptism of repentance? And the answer is it should be. Because what Peter says in Acts chapter two is repent and be baptized. So the repentance piece is a part of it. He then says, and the Holy Spirit doesn't always show up with baptism. I, I would... I would recognize that there, the normative way, as you mentioned earlier, is that the baptism that we experience in the name of Jesus does bring about the Holy Spirit. But he asked the question, so why does it sound like their baptism was less than and more is needed? Because their baptism, John's baptism was less than. Mm-hmm. So let me go, let's go back to Romans for a second. Let's try to parse this out for just a second. This is really important, and this is one of the things that I get. I always point to this text when we talk about um, the quote-unquote thief on the cross. He wasn't a thief. He didn't steal bread. He was a murderer. Probably some sort of uh, capital offense of some sort, right? You you didn't get crucified for stealing bread. So he wasn't a thief. He was some kind of— Terrible person. Treacherous human being who probably did some kind of uprising against the Romans. That's what gets you crucified. That All that being said, I get this a lot about the thief on the cross. And people say, well, he didn't get baptized. So he, we don't need to get baptized because he didn't get baptized. And I, I go back to this text. And this fits in the same thing with what happened with John's baptism. So Romans chapter 6 tells us this. Don't you know, this is Romans 6, verse 3, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So what this teaches us is that Christian baptism specifically, is a participation in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. When you are baptized into Christ, Paul writes, we were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we may have new life. So we participate in the death, the burial, and the resurrection through Christian baptism. Which means that when John was baptizing people, there was no such thing as Christian baptism. Mm -hmm. 
when the thief on the cross proclaims faith in Jesus, I always ask people, at that point, which of these things had happened? Had Jesus died, been buried, or been raised to life when Jesus is having this conversation? And the answer is, none of those things had happened yet. Jesus had not yet died, he had not yet been buried, and he had not yet been resurrected. So, even while Jesus is on the cross, as crazy as this is going to sound, because we're at the end of the Gospels, as crazy as it, as it sounds, we were still, the world was still operating under the old covenant. Mm-hmm. The, old, the old covenant did not go away. The new covenant did not arrive until the day of Pentecost, when it's John, I'm sorry, as Josh taught us just a couple of weeks ago, that what happened at Pentecost was the fulfillment of the new covenant when God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. That's when the new covenant began. Even Jesus alluded to this the night before his death, when he picks up a piece of bread and he picks up a cup of juice and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood because a new covenant was never established without blood. Until a sacrifice was made, the new covenant did not arrive. So Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was the establishment of the new covenant. So what happened with the thief on the cross was an old covenant. What happened with John the Baptist doing a baptism of repentance was a Jewish custom of cleansing to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. All of that to say, there is no such thing uh, uh, as Christian baptism, as being baptized in the name of Jesus until the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus was fulfilled. Yeah, that's really good. That's a good distinction, right, of the Old and New Covenant, which I think is why it was so important last week, Josh, that you pointed out that the promise of the Holy Spirit is a promise of the New Covenant for this exact reason, right? There is a clear delineation on the day of Pentecost that the Old is gone and the New has come, right. and we're operating under this New this new covenant now. Um, that's really good. Here's uh, the next few questions. Steve asks these. We'll take them one at a time because they're a little different here. So here's the first one. Um, does Quad City believe that water bab- uh, baptism is subsequent to salvation as an act of obedience or is it necessary for one to be saved? So I would say, as we have many, many, many times here, that every salvation story you read about throughout the book of Acts, and we look at the book of Acts, and it covers about, is it 40 years, 30 years? Pretty long. The book of Acts covers about 30 years of the early church. And so what we see all the way throughout the book of Acts, and the book of Acts tells us what happened in the church of Ephesus and in the church of Philippi and how that began and the church in Thessalonica. So all of these letters that were written, they all have the roots in the book of Acts. So those are not uh, separate theological underpinnings from the book of Acts. What we see in the book of Acts is the the early church um, history. And so we get to see what they do. And every one of these stories, whenever you find the someone coming to faith in Jesus, you will always find 
believe, repent, confess, and be baptized. Like that's the story of every conversion story in the book of Acts. And as we mentioned yesterday, there may be some moments where the spirit comes um, before the baptism. The, the, the baptism comes before the spirit, but you find all of these together. And so what we would say is, one, we don't speak around here of the language of being saved. Okay, so if you've been around, you will rarely ever hear us use that phrase about being saved. That's just, we don't get to choose that. God gets to choose who is saved and who is not saved. We don't use that language. What we do say is our job given to us by Jesus in the Great Commission is to make disciples. And what you will not find is the idea of an unbaptized disciple. Like that just isn't something you will find in in the early church. That's, that would just be an oxymoron. That would not make sense to the early disciples. So with that, we we don't get to determine who's saved and who's not saved. So we're not gonna we're not gonna go down that road. What we will say is Jesus has given us a very clear command to go make disciples. And in the Great Commission, when he says, go make disciples, what is the very first thing he connects to the making of disciples? Go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So that's what we do. And so what we do as a church is we have just determined that we're not going to be a church that puts a gap in between the moment of someone declaring their faith and being baptized. We don't see that biblically. Those two things go together. And so we want to do our best to keep those things together because Scripture puts them together. Most notably, we can go directly to the day of Pentecost. Again, just in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. When the Jewish audience who's listening to Peter preach the good news, they asked Peter and the other disciples a question. It says they were cut to the heart, and they ask, what shall we do? There's an action that has to be taken. How do we respond to this news that you have just given us? And Peter does not say, bow your head, pray this prayer, raise your hand. He doesn't do any of those things. There is no such thing as a sinner's prayer in Scripture. There is actually no one ever in Scripture who prays for salvation. That's not, it's just, it's something that we've done. It actually came out of the revival movement of the 1800s. It is not a biblical, it is not a biblical precedent that we would pray for salvation. Nope, it's just not there. And so how do we respond what shall we do? And Peter's very clear, simplistic answer was repent and be baptized. And both of those are important. Like if you get baptized without any repentance, that's that's as spiritually in-depth as doing a cannonball off of a high dive. You're just getting dunked underwater. It has no spiritual significance. Like we have to repent. There is a heart transformation that has to come alongside of our baptism. And again, there it's always been, it's always been funny for me that people get really angsty about well can I get 
saved without being baptized. And I, but nobody would ever say, could you get saved without repentance? Like we don't have that argument. Nobody's trying to argue for, hey, you can just do whatever you want and not repent. Mm. But Peter puts them together. Again, both of these things are expectations for, for followers of Jesus. So all of that to say, we don't determine who's saved. We're not going to tell anybody they're saved or not saved. What we are going to say is, as a disciple of Jesus, this is the expectation. You repent and you are baptized. And those two things are always connected with the coming of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. We don't need to parse these things apart because Scripture always keeps them together. Yeah. And I think that's helpful, right? You know, we we aren't the ones that do the saving. <laughs> yeah. Which is why we're not the ones that get to say, hey, here is the black and white, very clear delineated point in which you are justified, in which you are moved from sin to grace and I think it's human nature to want to know, right? It's human nature to want to know, okay, within these four things, if I believe, confess, repent, and be baptized, like at what point in that process am I justified? And we just don't have the clear answer. Uh, but what we do know is that those four things always come along all throughout the New Testament with someone coming to faith. So uh, again, we should exist within that, those four things being the way that someone comes to faith, the normative and, process. And I would, I would say... From the other side, I, I can hear somebody saying, but we do know, like Scripture tells us, Ephesians 2, 8, we are saved by grace through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's not by works so that no man can boast. To that, we would say yes and amen. The question is, how do we establish or proclaim our faith? How do we, how do we act upon our faith and receive that grace? And the biblical answer to that would be, through our repentance, confession, and baptism. That's how, that is the mechanism through which we receive the grace of God. And so if you ever want to hear, there's, if you ever want to know what somebody means by what someone says, watch what they do. And so if we want to know what does Paul mean when he says we receive by grace through faith, Look at his own faith journey. How did Paul describe his own conversion story? As Paul, in the very end of the book of Acts, he's sharing his testimony before, was it Festus or Felix? I can't remember. One of the two, one of the pro-councils, the kings of the time. And he shares his story and he talks about how he was sent to a guy named Ananias in Damascus. And Ananias says, I've come Paul to tell you the good news and you've been picked. And he says, Ananias says to Paul, now get up. What are you waiting for? Be baptized, washing your sins away. And Paul got up and he was baptized. Like that was Paul's own conversion story. It's a misnomer to say that Paul was converted on the road to Damascus. He was not converted on the road to Damascus. He was converted in Damascus. He did not hear the good news of Jesus until he got to Damascus blinded before Ananias. So Paul, Paul's own conversion story was, was him taking the step to get up and be baptized washing his sins away. That's his own story. So that is the mechanism for the receiving of the grace uh, according to scripture. It is by faith through, uh, by grace through 
faith, the declaration of that faith being, we believe, we repent, and we are baptized and confess with our mouth. So yeah. those are the four things that, that even Paul's story tells us uh, how he came to faith. Yeah, that's really good. Let's move on to his second question. Uh, Steve asks this, what is your take on Acts chapter eight, uh, specifically verses 14 through 17? I believe this is a subsequent baptism in the Holy Spirit to a group of believers who are already indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Well, I mean, no, because it literally says in verse uh, 14 and 15, so that's where he's at, Acts 8, 14, um, through 17. Yeah. Through 17. It's when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, which I always like to pause this because this is super important. So the, so God says, go into all the world <laughs> in Acts 1.8, right? He says, go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, yeah. which we know was a place Good Jewish people weren't going. No. They were not going to Samaria. They weren't going to do it. They did not want to go to Samaria. There was no desire for them to go to Samaria. In fact, most of them we know went around Samaria. So that it's in there from Jesus's word is very, very clear, right? So um, persecution breaks out in Acts 8, right? Right after Stephen is uh, persecuted and martyred for his faith, the first one. And literally in uh, verse 1 of 8, on that day, great persecution broke out against the church of Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Because God said, I need you to go to Judea and Samaria and make disciples, right? So here we have it. So they go to Samaria, Philip does, and he preaches the gospel, right? And there's a guy in the story, his name is Simon the Sorcerer, and he's real powerful. And I think this is a two-part here in Acts 8. So he preaches, people are baptized, and then so we're back to 14. So the disciples hear about it, they're apostles, and they're like, wait a minute, Samaria, they can't have. <laughs> they, they, no, they, I think it's the same way with uh, Acts 10 and Cornelius. Like, I don't know, man. These people couldn't have gotten, they're half-breeds. They're not, they're, God wouldn't have picked them. So this is, again, yeah. I think you're pointing to, whenever the gospel crosses huge ethnic lines, there is something special about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Yes. It, when it went from Jews to Gentiles, we see it with Cornelius, and now we're seeing it with Samaritans, again, who these, ah. these apostles would not have even yep. desired to walk through this area. Nope. So, Again, there's something special in this moment where God has to reveal something to his own apostles. And he yeah, says Peter almost, and John. It is almost special that, uh, right? Like it's as if God is revealing something to the apostles oh, 100%. about this being for everyone. A hundred percent. Which is really cool. So the they story. send Peter, Peter and John. And when they get there, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So apparently Philip goes, he preaches the gospel, they hear the gospel, they get baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and Peter and John go and check it out. And they're like, wait a minute, they don't have the Holy Spirit. God's like, no, I know because I actually need you to pray for them. Like, do we remember the lady at the, the Samaritan at the well? Like they were just irate that Jesus would have been talking to her. <laughs> Right. And now they're going to pray for the people that they would have been like, oh no, you're half breed. You're mm -hmm. unclean. Don't touch. So, like, it's just this incredible piece and picture of, and again, he uses Peter and John because why? 
they're the ones who are going to, they're the, they're the big dogs, right? They're like, let's take it one step further. In Luke chapter nine, it is John who is asking Jesus, can, (laughs) Lord, do you want us to pray down fire on these Samaritans? And Jesus said, no, what are you doing? No, we're not going to do that. And Mm. God used that same John not to pray down fire to destroy these people, but to pray down the spirit to bring life to these people. So you talk about a transformation in the life of John, the son of thunder, who's ready to destroy the Samaritans by praying down fire. And now he's praying down the power of the spirit on these people. And so then they place their hands on them and the Holy Spirit comes, which again, they wouldn't have done, right? Which is so incredible. And then there's Simon the sorcerer who's like, hey, wait a minute. I want that. Can I buy it? And they're very clear that that is not how the spirit of God comes you because that's what we do in church i think that's some of the black and white well i'll just buy it let me give you enough money brendan make me a believer and they're very clear that no that is not how god's spirit comes yeah we will not that's not how the kingdom of god works right so there's i think both of these parts in this are so important is the man look at john being used and it's a special way crossing lines but also you will not that's the spirit of God doesn't work like the world does, which goes back to your point. He can act and move however he wants. And we by no means can make sense of it, let alone try to purchase it. It is given as freely as a gift yeah. to those who believe, right? So I think Acts 8 is a really important thing. So I would, so the question is, is like, I, I don't think they had it because it's very clear that they didn't. Right. Like the text tells us that. Yeah, and I just, I do love, as you dig into that story, how it's so obvious that God was doing a work in the apostles, like simultaneous to the work that they were doing amongst the Sumerians. Like he was transforming the hearts of those two men. So I love, love that story. Anything else to add on that one? Well, again, there, there's, there's the normative way. And I think what we found in the 3000 at Pentecost is normative. Yeah. And then you have these other instances like, the gospel going to the Gentiles and the gospel going to to the Samaritans and God is doing a work in the previous believers to help them know, hey, they're in too and they're included too and you get to be a part. They're now your brothers and sisters. Like they're, they're, when it crosses these lines, God just does something different um, for the sake of the people who are already in. And then we yeah. know, right, like if you keep going in eight, like Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, right? So, Philip is there again in Samaria and he wouldn't have been there unless persecution happened and the spirit sent him. And then the spirit's like, Hey, go catch up with that guy in the chariot. And he catches up to him in the same way. He reads Isaiah and he ties it in because the spirit helps him connect the dots to Jesus. And the unit goes, well, there's water. Shouldn't I be baptized? And Philip's like, yeah. And I love (laughs) immediately Philip is gone Mm -hmm. and the Ethiopian unit returns because again, like our faith journey, part of it is sometimes we just help people get started. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then this, either he's going to go home and keep studying the scriptures and well, he's, he's, atta- he's, you know, connecting the dots. It's such a cool piece, but Philip's not even there if persecution doesn't happen. And I feel like sometimes God was like, didn't I tell you to go to Judea and Samaria? And mm-hmm. you just didn't do it. So, well, here you go. <laughs> and they go. Did, uh, did the Ethiopian eunuch have the spirit when he was baptized? He for sure was working on him. 
For sure. So that's my point. The Holy Spirit was absolutely at work in the entire thing. Like the Holy Spirit set up the meeting and and brought about the transformation. And then the Holy Spirit works to get Philip out of there. But we're not told that there was this uh, crazy moment that the Ethiopian eunuch had, but he was for sure already being transformed by the Spirit, which is why he said, hey, why shouldn't I be doing this? And so, again, it... The yep. normative way is exactly what we have experienced with the Ethiopian eunuch. He received the spirit and went back and it changed the world. In fact, the <laughs> I saw a clip the other day. Did we talk about this? I saw a clip the other day that talked that uh, one of those crazy videos where somebody was saying, you know, Christianity is a white man's religion. And then there was an Ethiopian who came up and said, no, that's stupid. We, the Ethiopians have had a Bible, the faith, the 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 gospel the, there have been more Christians in Ethiopia long before it ever got to Europe. Yep. Like our yeah. our Bible goes way back before the King James version of the Bible. It's not a white man's religion, and it goes all the way back to right here. Right he here. went back, and the Coptic Christians in in the northern Africa have been following Jesus for two thousand years. Yep. So yeah, it, the Holy Spirit was at work in the Ethiopian eunuch. 100%. It's yeah. very cool. So actually, it's a great chapter. Again, back to your point of Acts. So it's Acts of the Disciples. Yeah. Like, it, like if you have not really read the book of Acts, you need to. And again, it's so important because it's the beginning of our faith. And we see all of these things that we reference all the time. Because we talk about it a lot. It's really, really important. Yeah. Because it is the story that was collected for us to go, oh, what's our history? Oh, this is our this is our history textbook that tells us what did actually happen when the church happened? So we say things like, oh, the normative way is because we've studied Acts to go, yeah. oh, that's how it always worked. Yeah. yeah, We should probably do that. And we did a, gosh, 50, 48, some odd week <laughs> series in the book of Acts years ago. What yeah. was that? Seven, eight years seven ago? Probably seven or eight years ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah, nobody knows. And that's yeah. the one, I know, no yeah. one knows that. But that's yeah. the one where every time we talk about the book of Acts, I'm like, okay, we could revisit that at some point in the next, Five to seven years, like yeah. it'll be long enough removed. Oh, 100%. Where we could do, we could do that one again oh, because yeah. it is, man, it is so. so yeah, we important. did that. It, it was a, it was a two seasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. I believe part it. one, part two. Yeah, it's awesome. Okay, let's move on. Uh, this next question, it's actually kind of two questions, so I'll probably parse them up here. First is this: uh, Please explain how the name the Comforter, referring to the Holy Spirit, fits. Uh, my understanding is that this name, the Comforter, is the Holy Spirit. And then the second part of the question is, does Jesus stipulate we must be baptized? What about bedside conversions, uh, et cetera, where someone doesn't have an opportunity to be baptized? Okay, so I wish Corey was here for this question because literally I walked into his office last week, two weeks ago, when this coming Sunday, we're doing a sermon on what does the Spirit do? Okay, so that's the whole thing this week. What, what, is the, what does the Spirit do? And I ask him about, does the Spirit comfort believers? And he said, well, of course it does. Of course he does. And I said, okay, find me a verse. And I walked away. <laughs> and he comes back a half hour later and it's like, I couldn't find a verse. There's no verses. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about this for just a second. But, but that word, paraclete, is... Both of them. So yeah. the 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 where we get the word comforter actually comes from a 
King James Version translation of the word paraclete. And it's probably not a great translation, which Terrible. is why none of the new uh, none of the new modern translations use that uh-huh. verb uh, or use that word. So the word paraclete has a legal definition. It is like a lawyer stands beside you, a counselor. So again, that's where we get messed up too. What the what is what do you think of when I say the word counselor? Not legal terms. No, we're thinking of the guy I go in and lay on his couch. Oh, right. That's no. not the word. It is the legal term for counselor. If you stand, if you go to a courtroom, the judge might address one of the counselor. attorney attorneys as counselor. Because that's what he is, someone standing on behalf of the other. So that's what that word counselor is. So the advocate is all is the, what most of the modern translations utilize because it has legal definition. The word comforter isn't there. Now, there is one text in Acts we'll use this week that talks about how the spirit was an encourager to the people and the whole church was encouraged that you could kind of tie those two in together. But the idea of the spirit being a comforter actually isn't there. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that this, this Sunday. Um, and that's not to say before we move off the comfort piece that we don't experience comfort from God, right? Well, we we'll talk him. about it this week. Are we going to? Okay. <laughs> we will. Oh, we're gonna I mean, talk we talked about, about it week. in our second Corinthians series for about a whole week and a half. So, so. We'll, we'll, we'll hit that this week. Uh, now the question, the second question is, does this, does Jesus stipulate that we must be baptized? Uh, again, I think we've covered a lot of that. Jesus makes the command, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I will be with you always to the end of the age. So, yes, Jesus has the expectation that we would be baptized, that every disciple would be baptized. There is no such thing as an unbaptized disciple Biblically, we just don't see it. Um, and so I think the answer to that is just found right there in the Great Commission, um, that we should should do that. That's part of being a disciple of Jesus. What about bedside conversions? Uh, again, God can save whomever he wants. We're, we're not here to say to someone that they, because they confessed Jesus three minutes before their life was taken in some tragic accident that they're not saved because they didn't get baptized. That's not, again, that's not our call. We're not, we're not here to save people. That's not our job. We're not the ones who get to determine whether somebody gets saved or not. We're here to make disciples and this is what disciple making looks like. And so um, hopefully that clears that up for you, March. Yeah, that's really good. Let's move on to the next question. This is from Jody, and I love I love this question. Mm-hmm. It says this, uh, you also mentioned Ephesians 5, 18, and how we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Could you talk about what this looks like practically, how it plays out in our lives and relationships? The reason I ask this question is that there have been a few people in my life who often say, the Spirit told me to fill in the blank, or the Spirit told me that you or we should fill in the blank, right? The spirit said so, so we must do it is kind of what she's getting at. Eventually I learned that, uh, uh, I learned to pray and search the scriptures myself for whether to follow these uh, uh, pronouncements. Now I would say that I'm much less inclined to listen to someone who is often saying the spirit told me, but if I'm wrong in this attitude, I would like to know. Thank you so much. 
I love this question. That's a great question. Have you guys had this in your lives? Oh, so many people use this now. The Spirit told me. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I would say, so this is my precursor. So if they're telling me the Spirit told them, then those people better have fruit of the Spirit that I can clearly see in their life. Hmm. That's how I look at it. Because if you have a relationship with the Spirit, you also have fruit. And then I can go, I can I can actually judge that. I can see if your love and patience and kindness and peace, all that stuff. So for me personally, Joey, that's sometimes how I use the, when somebody comes up to me and may say that, I also, I can examine, because we are allowed as believers to examine other believers by the fruit in their life. And so it helps me because this term does get thrown out, I think, um, really loosely maybe nowadays. And sometimes I feel like it's just people's way to say, you can't really argue with me because the spirit of God told me. And I'm like, okay, well, especially, let me say, if they're using me, like the spirit told me, and like if Jason said, hey, me and you need to go do this, the spirit told me, I'm going to be like, oh gosh, does Jason have fruit? I mean, I don't know. maybe, (laughs) But that's how I would do it, right? Like that, that helps me in that, in that context, at least that's kind of the new, one, I don't know, last four or five years, one of the ways I've, I've started to kind of look at it. So That's really good, though, to your point. Like, how do you how do you argue with someone telling you that God told you to do something? I don't it's know. a hard thing to argue with. So it's a really great question that I'm sure many of us have had to wrestle with. Yeah. Uh, Jody, I think you are exactly right. You, what you, Scripture says, test the spirits to see which are from God. So mm. people, there, there may be, and this 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 opens a dark door. There are all sorts of spirits saying all sorts of things to all sorts of people. And we have to test the spirits. There are times when spirits speak and it may not actually be the spirit of God. And when they tell you the spirit told me, they might be right, but it doesn't make it from the Holy Spirit. Hmm. So we have to take whatever it is that we hear from people and we have to run it through the filter of scripture, of God's revealed plan and God's work in us. And so we have to run it. So you are doing exactly the right thing. We, we can receive whatever somebody says, but then we have to test it. Um, just because a spirit told me doesn't mean it's the spirit. So I this is going to segue into a question we have, so I think we can get there with this one. So we talked in the staff meeting two weeks ago about um, in the Old Testament, about how God literally sent uh, 400 spirits or yeah. 400 prophets filled with not the spirit to, yeah. to punish a king, Ahab, yes. right? Like that— and then again, and he's like, he listened to them and didn't yes. listen to the, well, he knew really. But again, there are other spirits that are speaking, right? Yes. What is that in? It was in, it's in Samuel? Uh, Chronicles. Second Chronicles. Second sorry. Chronicles. Yeah. So again, but I literally, you just said that, that there are sometimes other spirits that are talking and it's like, wait a minute, that's actually not the right thing to say. Right. Yeah. And again, what it literally went against what, like what it made sense in that story, right? is because the spirits were saying the thing that he wanted to hear, right. not the truth, right. right? So that's another way, like yeah. you said, test to go, does this actually fit scripture? Right. Like, I don't think the spirit's telling you to go to X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Because that wouldn't... It goes directly against the revealed will of God. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's really good. I, sorry, go ahead. I just want to back up and hit Jody's first question because okay. I think it is a secondary issue. It's really, really important. In fact, I said in the sermon, we would touch on this a little bit. So let's just take the first 
sentence that Jody asked and separate it from the last part. So here's the first part. Said so you mentioned Ephesians 5.18 and uh-huh. how we are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. Could you talk a bit about how this would practically play out in our lives mm. and relationships? So how do we get filled with the Spirit? There is a command, be filled with the Spirit. How do we do that? Because I think, again, so many of us, we look for that. We're longing for that. We're praying for that. How do we do that? And again, I think the, the first thing that we have to recognize is that the Spirit does what the Spirit wants to do. And so we cannot... <sighs> I'm thinking of our story, your story, Brennan. We cannot manifest this filling of the Spirit. We can't, we can't make it happen. We can't conjure it up. The Spirit does come upon people, does fill people, does anoint people in powerful ways for powerful moments at his own discretion. So we can't manufacture that. So I I feel like we need to say that up front. Mm. Um, But here's what I want to remind us of. There are some things that we can do to set ourselves up that would allow the Holy Spirit to fill us. Because while I don't think that we can bring about the filling of the Spirit on ourselves, we can for sure keep the Spirit from being able to fill us. I think that's what the Scripture says when it says, don't quench the Spirit, Mm -hmm. that we have the ability to keep the Spirit from filling us. So let me give you three three ways that that I think— we can three things that we can do to help us be positioned for the Holy Spirit to fill us. So let's go to the first one in Galatians chapter five. So that's where this text comes from. She mentioned 518 where it says, be filled with the Spirit. If you back up just two verses, it says this. Ephesians. Ephesians or Galatians? Ephesians. Ephesians. She yeah. mentions Ephesians. I'm sorry. Galatians is the one I'm looking at. Okay. So uh, she mentioned defeat. I'm sorry, I got no, confused you're good. there. So Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 says this. So I say, walk by the Spirit. So this is first and foremost. We have to be walking by the Spirit. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, you got to be walking by the Spirit. And here's what he says. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, and you are not to do whatever you want. So the first thing that we, if we want to be filled with the Spirit, we got to be walking by the Spirit. We got to be living our life in obedience to the Spirit, which brings us to uh, to number two, which is that we've got to be killing sin in our life. Again, Galatians mentions that when it says, "Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh." Uh, we can't be filled with the Spirit while we are walking and living in sin. So. Again, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 helps, again, helps us to play this out. Sorry, my Bible got flipped around there. Ephesians 29 says, but now, oops, sorry. You you power company. I know, I got it. I got it, I got it. Here we go. Here's what it says. 
Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So again, our sin grieves the Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander and along with every kind of form of malice. Be kind and compassionate with one another. Forgive each other just as God forgave you. Drop down to verse three of chapter five. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper of God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, of course, Joseph, it's out of place, but rather thanksgiving. So it is getting rid of that sin so that we are not grieving the Holy Spirit. That's the whole point of this text. You can't be filled with the Spirit while you are grieving the Spirit. So, give you two of them, back to it. You gotta be walking by the Spirit. And number two, you gotta be killing sin by the power of the Spirit. And then here's the last one I'd share. If you wanna be filled with the Spirit, you gotta be on mission. You gotta be on mission. Again, every one of the examples that we talked about, about what it means to be filled with the Spirit, these were people who were doing it for the sake of ministry, not just some emotional experience. Go back to Jesus' declaration in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as he's declaring to the disciples that the Holy Spirit is coming what was the point and the purpose of the coming of the Holy Spirit? He says, but stay in Jerusalem and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you so that you will be my witnesses throughout Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The coming power of the Holy Spirit was to propel the ministry of the disciples. So you want to be filled with the Spirit? You got to be walking with the Spirit you got to be walking in obedience to the Lord, killing your sin. And then thirdly, be on mission. The Holy Spirit, all of these times, and we could go through the book of Acts, and I could give you, I wrote down six different ones of when the Holy Spirit fills a believer, and it's always in the context of powerful ministry. Which makes sense when you go back to the Galatians verse, right? So the Galatians verse at the very end says, you do not do what you want to do. Literally, when you read the book of Acts, the disciples don't do anything that they want to do. They're always being sent to do something that there's no reason why they would want to do that. They're going to Samaria. Paul can't go to Macedonia. He's got to go over here, right? Peter's like, Lord, I'm not eating this. He's like, nope, you're going to Cornelius' house. (laughs) He's staying at Tanner. Uh, you know, Simon the Tanner, which was a, you know, a leather maker. Jewish people didn't stay there again. So like, that's the spirit. When you're really walking with the spirit, you're likely not going to be doing the things that the flesh wants to do. You're going to be doing things that people go, why is Jason doing that? And the only answer is, I don't know, man, this is what the spirit of God, this is where he's sending me. This is what he's telling me. He's putting me in these situations that I normally wouldn't be in. And then it makes me have to rely on him, not me. Because I am so out of maybe your natural comfort zone or your natural wheelhouse that it's like God has intentionally put you there so that at the end of the day, they go, wow, that clearly wasn't you. And you go, no, man, I I don't even know why I was here. This is all God's glory. This is nothing of me. The reason we needed an extraordinary filling of the Holy Spirit is because we recognize 
that we are totally out of our comfort zone, yep. that there's a, a need for the Holy Spirit because we don't have what it takes to accomplish. Uh, again, I think maybe one of the most powerful is in Acts chapter 7, where it says, Stephen, mm-hmm. full of the Holy Spirit, is taking rocks to the face as he looks up and he sees heaven. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and they're stoning him to death. Which is always so interesting because normally Jesus is sitting. Yeah. This yeah. is the only time we find him standing. Uh-huh. And then I did a, I did a whole piece of a sermon. I think he's standing there cheering him on right. as he's walking to the finish line. Yeah. I mean, the finish line's right there. He sees him. It's a powerful moment. But that took the supernatural if we're never in situations where we are mm. above our head, if we're not out over our skis, then what what do we need the extraordinary power of the Holy Spirit for? If we're I don't need him to help me watch Netflix. Like that there's nothing I'm not <laughs> lacking anything in that moment. Wow. But when you put yourself in situations, that's when God says, I he's going to show up. It's Peter yeah. and John standing before the Sanhedrin. You're not getting it before. He'll yeah. tell you at that moment, because you're going to be in over your head in that moment. He's going to show up and fill the gap. Which if you've ever shared your faith, yeah. all of, and I think that's what we, so we talked about this a couple of weeks ago in our sermon planning group is, because this was the question, how do people know? How do you know? Because this is a very like, back to the spirit told me it's a personal thing. Most people after the moment happens, they go, they look back and go, that was the time I was for sure filled with the Spirit. Yeah. It's so hard to make sense of and describe. Like in that moment, you, it's it's the, I think the perspective of the hindsight to go, oh, that for sure, that wasn't Josh. Yeah. I that, had somebody yeah. come up this weekend and tell me, it's happened to me twice where I just opened my mouth and words came out that made no sense to me. I don't know where they came from, but that it was it was the exact right thing to, that needed to be said in that exact right moment. And you're like, yeah, that lines up. That's yeah. exactly what scripture teaches us yeah. about the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon us to give us the words that we need in those moments. And so it lines up. And again, it's usually, like you said, it's for the sake of ministry, which means for the sake of others. Right. Yeah. And for the sake of emotion means the sake of self. Yeah. Right, that I have experienced this thing by myself. I don't think that's ever usually how the spirit works. It's always for somebody else. Well, we'll talk about. I do think there are ways that the Holy Spirit comes in in personal ways for us, and Paul even addresses that a little bit. But again, normative filling of the right. Spirit is not about us. The normative filling of the Spirit, biblically, every example. Go again. I would just encourage you grab a concordance. Go to a computer, find a software, just type in filled with the Spirit and see the circumstances of when those things happen. And it is almost always, always in connection to powerful moments of ministry, not an emotional experience. Which makes sense with your indwelling and infilling. The the language there is really helpful. Like the indwelling, I sense that at times. And then the infilling is those times for- Those powerful, powerful extraordinary moments. moments. Which language is really helpful in that that instance. That's good. All right. Well, uh, thanks for bearing with us here. We've got two more. So we got (laughs) to get these- We told you there was a lot today. Got to get these done. Uh, Here's uh, here's the next one. It's from Liz. Uh, She says, I have a lot of people ask me, what it means to pray in the spirit. Are you going to cover that subject at all? Yes. We'll drop that in at some point before this series is done. Awesome. 
Yeah. Good. Okay. Next one. Uh, Heidi, we're going to wrap up with this one. Uh, this is a great question. I'm excited for, uh, for some of the answers here. Uh, Heidi uh, says, I would love to hear more about the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament prior to the arrival of Jesus in the day of Pentecost. Uh, she gave some examples, uh, some of the judges, specifically King Saul. Uh, and then also in the New Testament, uh, you have examples of people being filled with the Holy Spirit prior to Pentecost. Examples, Mother uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. How are these examples slash experiences different from or similar to the ones referenced uh, in today's sermon from the book of Acts? Great question, Heidi. Thank you for uh, sharing that with us. Um, here's what I would say. The Old Testament, the language that you're going to find in the Old Testament is that the Spirit came upon them. So it's different than they were filled with. So there is something different about the way that the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament. There are some where it talks about being filled with. Uh, one of my favorites is in Exodus chapter 31. So in Exodus 31, God has given the uh, the instructions to Moses about building the tabernacle. And there are two guys mentioned in Exodus 31, starting in verse one, it says, then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have chosen Belzalel, son of Uri, hmm. the son of Ur, to the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with wisdom and understanding, with knowledge and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for the work of gold and silver and bronze to cut out and set stones to work in wood and to engage in all sorts of crafts. So you've got these couple of guys that God filled with his spirit to build the tabernacle, which is so amazing to me, but it was a holy thing and it needed had spirit-filled hands to create the thing. So you do have this. Here's the difference between what you find in the in the Old Testament. And again, let's make the differentiation. When you're asking about Mary, the mother of Jesus, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, all of those are still old covenant. The new covenant does not come until the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the, and the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. So they're all old covenant. So in, in that way, all of those are actually the same, even though they're in the New Testament, they're still under the old covenant. So God would come upon those people for a task. We could think about Samson. You could think about Gideon. You think about uh, David, even as king, one of the most Sincere prayers in all of scripture is Psalm 51, where David has been caught in his sin. And part of his prayer of repentance is, please do not take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of my salvation. He had the Holy Spirit. First Samuel, we're told that his heart broke because the Spirit left him and he didn't know it. And I thought, how powerful is the Holy Spirit alive in your life if he could leave and you didn't know it? So Samuel had some issues that were going on in his life. But 
in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit would come for a season or for a task. He was there for Saul as he was king, but when Saul began to walk in disobedience, the Spirit left Saul. Now, the promise for those of us in the New Testament Jesus made is that we have been sealed by the Spirit, and he will be with us forever. He's not going to go away. He w- we will have the indwelling of the Spirit till we uh, forever will be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And again, this comes back to the distinction between the indwelling and the infilling. We can be indwelled with the Holy Spirit while at the same time grieving him and, and uh, quenching, quenching yeah. him so that the power of the Holy Spirit is, is negligible in our life because we're not walking by the Spirit, we're not living in obedience to the Spirit, and we're not putting ourselves in situations where we actually need the Spirit to come through and to work on our behalf. So, Old Testament, I'm sorry, Old Covenant, it was temporary. And limited. I mean, we're talking, I mean, how many examples? Well, how many years of these writings? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking, if it's 50 people in yeah. all of those books, in Pentecost, it hit 3,000. Yeah. It, or, or let's just say it hit 120, yeah. boom, right there. Right. And it wasn't just the greats of yeah. Samson and Gideon and yeah. Jephthah. It was like everybody. It, it was every, so that, I think, is yeah. the greatest difference. In the Joel text, it's on all oh. people. right? Your like sons that's, and daughters. That's yeah. the biggest difference, right, that I think yeah. makes the distinction for us is, like you said, it was seasonal and task-oriented, and it's— it was just a certain number of people that really you can count on your hands. Yeah. Like it was so less than yeah. 3,000 at yeah. one time, right? That, yeah. And again, now it's on Jason and Johnny and Paul. Like all, yeah. all people have it who've been baptized, right? So it's not limited anymore. And like you said, it's not going away. It's it's there forever, which is such an he. Inter- he He is not going away, yes, which is such an interesting thing because somebody asked me about that, about uh, like what happens— when we go to glory. And I was like, forever. It says forever. Means forever, right? It says forever. <laughs> right, right. We didn't talk about Jesus. I mean, we can't today, but well, maybe we should get to that because there is an interesting thing about Jesus being baptized and then yeah. the Holy Spirit falling on him and yep. then literally the Holy Spirit leads him yep. out into, into the, the wilderness, wilderness yeah. which we don't see that yeah. before that moment. Right. So I know we didn't talk about it in the sermon. We did talk about it in yeah. this, the thing. So maybe we'll just touch on that another time. But it is a very... Read the Gospels and read what happens with Jesus and his Mm -hmm. baptism, and then read how the Spirit leads him and guides him and directs him. After that moment. After that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And read before that moment. Yeah. It is really interesting. That is really good. Well, we did get one other question that we didn't get to um, about worship because we're going to get to it this next week, right, Jason? Yes. Yeah. On Sunday. So uh, just for the the, uh, listener that sent that question in, we will hit it next week. Uh, But I just want to say thank you for everyone who sent questions in. It's made it a way more productive conversation than if we're just trying to guess at what questions might be out there. So if you sent a question in, thank you so much for that. Um, And we will see you again next week. 